I worked on it and I went back and took out a couple more pages and I went back took out some more pages and I thought man I know there's no way I'm probably going to be able to get this in one week so hopefully I will but you know those that know me very well know that that's probably not going to happen so if that happens and then we'll finish it up next week because in order before we can understand on how to share our faith we have to understand our culture we have to understand the environment that we're in and that's what I want to talk about first because our environment, or that we're in a transitional period of time. We're transforming, or, or transitioning from a modern, what they call modernism, to postmodernism. But right now, we kind of have both things going on. And I say those words, and you probably don't understand what they mean. So luckily, guess what? I'm going to explain it, hopefully, well enough so you can understand it. So I've got a lot of stuff here, so hopefully I'm going to you know, stick here and just get the kind of the basis in that, because I think if we understand these things, and we understand the, the environment that we live in, we understand what people think about, then maybe we can understand how to reach them. Because that's what we want to do, isn't it? We want to reach them for Christ. We want to show them that being a Christian is the greatest thing in the world for someone to become. And in order to do that, we have to understand that. So that's what I'm kind of going through. Now, pre-modernism, which was before modernism. Hey, how about that, huh? One, okay. Now, pre-modernism, it started, it kind of went from the time the New Testament was finished until the 1500s. That was pre-modernism. And that was a time when most of the people were illiterate. They didn't read, and they trusted their leadership. The more educated people were the ones that ruled. They figured that they knew more than they did, so therefore they ought to know what they're talking about, so I'm going to follow somebody that's more educated than I am. And this was the time of kings and and uh, monarchs and, and all that other kind of stuff like that. And it was an era of power. And knowledge was power back then. And the uneducated people just were led around by the nose, basically, by someone that was educated. And sometimes today we still have a little bit of that. People think that because someone knows more than I do about something, that I have to listen to them. But the reality is we have to know what God says. And just because someone's educated doesn't mean that they have knowledge, more knowledge than we do, and it doesn't mean that they have more wisdom than we do. Because wisdom is something that God can give us, but we have to accumulate the knowledge. So that was the pre-modernism type of society. If I was educated, man, I could write my own ticket. I could do whatever I wanted to do, and I could have a flock of people following me. That was pre-modernism. And then in about 1980s, a change happened. We had the, the printi, printing press was invented. No, excuse me, I'm sorry. The printing press was not the 80s. This is the 16th century. See, I'm jumping ahead of myself too. But the printing press was invented. And we know how much that changed the world. The printing press was one of the greatest inventions of our time. But it changed the whole environment that we live in. And then science all of a sudden started discovering things. And people started becoming more interested in science. And the great uh, Lutheran Reformation happened during the 16th century. So that's what happened during that time. And they believed that reason and knowledge could solve any problem that there was. Because, hey, knowledge is powerful. And during this time, the main source of communication was the written page. So therefore, people became, started to become literate. They, everyone could learn how to, was learning how to read. It was the thing to do. Before, only the elite could learn how to read. Only if you had money could you be able to read. But now, because of the printing press, things were more available, and everyone was learning how to read. And that transformed the world that we live in. It transformed it tremendously. All of a sudden, people could have access to God's word. Now, postmodernism, that's what started around the 1980s. And that's when we had that kind of that paradigm shift of, of uh, theology and things. And now, all of a sudden, people didn't believe that reason could solve it. It solved everything. And technology couldn't solve everything because technology has caused as many problems as it's solved. And that's the, kind of the environment that we live in. And everyone in postmodernism, they believe that everyone has a hidden agenda. If you do something for someone else, you have an ulterior motive. There's an, you don't ever do anything unless you have an ulterior motive. And we see that every day in politics, don't we? They promise us the world. You promise somebody, hey, I won't ever, you won't have to pay any taxes, and at the end of the year, I'm going to give you a check. Hey, I could run and I could get a win by a landslide if I could promise that. But the reality is, as we know, that usually doesn't happen. So that's kind of where we're at now. We're in that uh, 
Digital technology and the main source of communication is the internet. Wow, what an invention that has been. All of a sudden, I'm not kidding you, we have so many things available to us, and man, I just love it because there's so many resources that we can get. I mean, I have a, a huge library in my house of books and information and all those kind of things that we used to, that's what I used to have to use. But now, hey, you got all these Bible programs, you can get a, on a little disc, you can have like 20 versions of the Bible. So you don't have to worry about having 30 books in your library, you can just type it in and see what it says, and then compare one version against the other. Wow, what a, what a great invention. So it's good. All these things have been good, and they promoted knowledge to us in society, and it changed, our, changed the way that we live, changed the way that we communicate. Now, what amazes me, we used to write letters. When I was growing up, wanted to communicate with somebody, I'd write a letter because long distance was expensive. So you, you, know, you just didn't call people. So I wrote letters. And now, what do we do? We have phones that we text on. We got rid of this and got cell phones so we could talk to people. Now we're back to writing letters. <laughs> Yesterday on the news, they said that one, got, that one father said that his kid texts over 17,000 texts in one month. I'm going, how in the world could that happen, you know? And they said that she had to text something every two minutes for 24 hours a day in order to get that many texts in. I'm going, whoa. So now we're back to writing letters with emails and stuff, you know, so kind of what comes around goes around. So but right now we're kind of in that transitionary period of time. We've got some modernism that's still hanging around, and we've got some postmodernism that we're dealing with. And they... Postmodernism believes that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Have you heard that? No absolute truth. And then I always ask him, are you absolutely sure? Because <laughs> that's a good way to get them when they say that. And they believe that um, there's an emphasis on tolerance. Have we heard that? Oh, man, that's, that's the theme of today. Tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. We have to be tolerant of everybody and everything except Christianity. You don't have to be tolerant of our beliefs. You don't have to be tolerant of us. Just tolerant of everything else. And we're the only ones that's supposed to be tolerant. But that's society we live in. That's postmodernism. So when we're dealing with these kind of issues, we need to understand that that's where people are coming from. And we understand their background, then we know, well, how can I break through this? What can I do? If we don't understand these changes, of course, when we're trying to share our faith to somebody, we're going to look like a bunch of idiots or a jerk because we're trying to deal with people in something that they don't understand. It'd be like us being dropped in the middle of Africa, and we're trying to communicate the gospel in English when no one understands it. But the reality is that's what we're dealing with now. <clears throat> we live in a society where they don't understand what we're talking about, and they feel threatened by us when we're trying to do it, and we look like a bunch of jerks, and they don't want anything to do with us. Now, modern outreach, was one about, was about conquest. Wow, conquest. And Christopher Columbus, when he came to America, he came to, to promote the gospel. And he thought that he was doing God a favor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Coming here, and he was promoting the gospel. And he even did it by force. Figured, hey, I'm forcing you to be a Christian. And that's what happened. And so we had the crusades, we have all these things, and we're trying to force people to succumb to Christianity. And that's kind of the, what that modernism thing was. We talk about taking our cities for God or winning people to the Lord like it's a battle. Well, conquest language scares people. And so we've got to understand that we're transitioning. And this modernism stuff, it works really good for people that were nominal Christians, people that come to church, people that believed God's word and believed there was a God, believed that everything in his word was true. Modernism worked great for them. And Charles Finley, he was a great man during the 1800s. And we get a lot of the way that we do outreach and things from him. He's the one that started the altar call, calling people forward to be able to accept Christ as their Savior. He was an attorney that was converted evangelist. And he, man, he reached this world or reached the Americas and, and Europe not for, him, for God. And he did a great job. And from him is where we got a lot of these things from. But he believed that if you had a great event, if you said, I'm having a revival, and people didn't come and accept Christ, then it was because your method was wrong, or because you had the wrong speaker, or there was a wrong color. Something in that was wrong. And that's the theology of modernism. If it doesn't work, 
then there's something, we got to change the program. And we've tried a lot of programs around here, haven't we? <laughs> haven't we tried a lot of programs? Oh, man, we've tried programs. We throw money at them. We do all kinds of things because we're trying to reach people with a program. And we haven't been very successful. Why? Because we don't understand the culture. We're, we're trend, in a transition period of time. And modernism and programs and those kind of things, they reach people that were raised in the church. They understand God. The only thing is they just haven't accepted him as their personal savior. And we have a lot of people like that. And we want to reach them too. That's why we have to know our audience. As a minister or a teacher, you kind of have to know your audience in order to be able to minister to them, in order to equip them. Because if you don't, you're going to be teaching stuff that doesn't even apply to them. And that's sometimes what we do with programs. We see a program, well, this worked over here, so I'm going to bring it over here. Well, that doesn't mean it's going to work. And when it doesn't work, we say, well, we just took the wrong program. Well, maybe it isn't the program. Maybe it's our approach. We can't just throw money at something. We just can't throw a program at something and expect it to work. Our faith is then in the program. And programs aren't the answer, as we found out around here. We spend a lot of money on programs. We spend a lot of time trying to institute a program. And they haven't been successful because we're, that's not where it's at. We're not to, the ones that we're reaching, which is nominal Christians, those are the ones they work best on. Now, we need both approach because we have both types of people in our society. But we have to not just be focused on one group of people. I want the un unknown or the unchurched people to come to church. I want everyone to feel welcome here, not just the ones that were raised in a Christian home or raised in a church. I don't want just them here. I want everybody to be here because God, Jesus died for everybody, not just for the people who were raised in Christian homes. So we just can't cut off one hand of our, of our outreach and expect it to work because you need two hands. You need two hands in order to promote the gospel. And we have to understand what, what group we're dealing with. If you're dealing with a modernist, modernist, then okay, sometimes conquest theology will work with them. But if we're working with postmodernism, which they believe, <clears throat> they don't believe like we do. They don't believe that the Bible's true. They don't believe all this stuff. We have to have a different approach. And that's what we need to do. <clears throat> yesterday's, yesterday's outreach was basically program-based. Today, okay, we know what yesterday was. What is the approach we got to have today? The approach we have to use today is relationship. That's the thing that's going to work, is relationship. And in relationships, we know that you have to get to know somebody. You have to spend time with them. You have to build this up. It isn't something that happens overnight. We just can't go to somebody and beat them over the head with the gospel and expect them to be saved. We can't do that. We have to build a relationship with, it, with people. We have to be able to gain their respect and their trust. We have to do that if we want to win them for Christ. But unfortunately, that takes time. And we don't have the time to do that, or we don't think we do. And so all these people that could potentially come to Christ, if we would just invest a little bit of our time and a little bit of our energy into, then, hey, we could reach them. So we have to change our thinking. We have to understand that we have to be more service-oriented. We have to be more relationship-oriented if we want to reach this country or this area for Christ. We can reach him if we build a relationship with him. And we can't put strings on it. We can't put strings on our, on our outreach to people. We have um, a lot of cults have tried what they call love bombing, where they go through and they... they, they uh, target somebody, and man, they're just all over them. They're loving them, and they're doing all this kind of stuff. They're helping them with their yard. They're helping them do all this other kind of stuff that they're doing so they can gain them into their group. If they don't reach that goal, then hey, goodbye. Forget it. I'm not interested in you anymore. And we can't do that. We have to really care about people, and we have to be willing to build relationships with people because that's what's going to work. I don't care what program we buy. I can, I can spend $1,000 on a program. I could hire a, the, one of the greatest speakers that there was and bring them. But that wouldn't necessarily mean that anything's going to happen. It might. It might help some of the people. The nominal Christians will come. The people that used to come to church years ago, the ones that used to sit in these pews might, might come because there's something new and different. And somebody with a name. Oh, man. Somebody with a name. But see, we serve someone that has a name, don't we? His name's Jesus. That's the only name we have to worry about. So we 
have to kind of shift our, our parameters and start doing a little bit of both and know our audience. <clears throat> modernism tried to prove the message was true. That's what modernism did. They tried to prove that the, the Bible's true and all these things was true. And that's when, when the church got involved in apologetics and all these books were written about how, why the Bible is true and all these other kind of things. And they're great resources. And we should know those because there are going to be some people that we need to have that information to share with them because we have to be able to show them that this stuff in here is true. But in postmodernism, we have to prove the message is relevant. They don't care if the Bible's true. They don't care anything about that. They want to know, is it relevant for my life today? If I have become a Christian, is it relevant to me? What's it going to do for me? What's in it for me? That's just postmodernism. And the only way we're going to reach them is by touching their lives, by building relationships with them, by showing them that, hey, you know, we love you, and, and my friendship with you or my relationship with you isn't dependent upon whether you accept Christ or not. I want you to. That's my greatest desire. But we have to be able to walk that walk and be able to build those relationships because they found out that our unchurched people are starting to come to churches because of curiosity. They want to know, does this Christian faith work? Does it work? They don't care if it's true. They want to know, does it work? And if it works, then, hey, we can get them. They can become Christians. Once we can show them, and so they're coming here, they want to see what's all this hoopla in this Christian community. I want to see what a true Christian environment's like. And then I want to decide if that's something I want to do. And they come in through our doors. And it usually, they did a study and they found out that when new people or seekers, they call them seekers, they come into a Christian environment seeking answers. They want to see, does this work? That it takes somewhere between 4 and 12 months before those people will actually make a commitment to Christ. Seems like a long time, doesn't it? Well, that's because the environment we live in, it isn't necessarily always going to take that, but that's the average. Because they want to make sure that what they're getting involved in is true. They want to get sure that it, what is going on is relevant to, relevant to their life. And that's what we have to do. And we have to let them do that. We have to let them ask questions. We have to be able to, to uh, build relationships with them, to show them, yeah, this, is, this works. This is something that you need to do. We have to be able to be willing to do that. And in postmodernism, that's what we're going to deal with a lot. But if we're trying our conquest theology, we're not going to make it. We're going to fall on our face when you're dealing with a postmodernist because it won't work. People scares them to death, and it scare you to death too. I'm going to take my city. I'm taking your house for God. Oh, yeah? Pow, I got a gun. And they don't like it. And they, we try to share our faith, and they look at us like we're a bunch of idiots. And you don't blame them, because we're talking a foreign language. We know. See, we get so excited within our hearts, we want everybody to be saved, that we would just, oh, man, if I could just pick them up and go, can't you get this? You know? Why don't we just do that? But it doesn't work. We raised four kids, and it doesn't work to talk to them. They don't care. Half of everything we told them went right here, and the other half, I don't know where it's at. So they listened to very little of what they heard when they were growing up. But then as they grew up and matured and they started seeing things the way they really are, now all of a sudden those things that mom and dad called them back then, all of a sudden they make sense. And then they have kids and then they start the cycle all over again. Trying to beat it into them. Hey, you don't do this. Why? 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 That's what we want. Why? 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 So we have to show that the message of Jesus is relevant, and it makes sense, and it's credible. And the reason the message is relevant, because it's true. So when I try to tell people about my faith in Christ, and I say, I'm going to give you 16 reasons why Jesus rose from the dead, they say, so what? They don't care. What's that got to do with me? That happened 2,000 years ago. How is it relevant to my life? And that's what we have to deal with. We have to show them why it is relevant to your life. And then it's relevant because it's true. We try to throw the truth into there, and they don't care. Unless it affects their life or something that applies to them, hey, they're throwing it all out. And that's what we've been trying to do is throw it down in their face, beat them over the head with their Bibles, my husband got saved, he didn't get saved because I beat him over the head and I said, I'm taking you to Jesus, why force? Worst place, you know, I wouldn't be able to do that. 
I didn't do that. I had to let him see the good that God has done in my life. I had to let him observe. I had to be there. Even though as anxious as I was about him becoming a Christian, I had to let that go. I had to be willing to be able to sit and wait and pray for him and allow God to work in his own time. And sometimes it takes four to 12 months because he has to see, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. I've been involved with religion before, and I've seen what happened. So I'm not being down that trail again. And that's what we deal with a lot. We deal with people that have seen religion because they can't separate the two. What's the difference between Christianity and a religion? Relationship. And Jesus died so we can have a relationship with him. Because he wants to be, he wants us to know him. He doesn't want to run and hide from us. He wants to know him. And that's what pro-modern people want. They want to know God. They don't want to know about God. They want to know him personally. And we are, have the privilege and the honor to be able to introduce them to him. And then once they find out that it's relevant to their life, and it's true, that's when all of the gears start fitting in motion. It's kind of like the combination lock. You have to go through all these things, left this way, right this way, pass one time, and then go back to the left, and all that. You can't just go in there and push the right number, the last number on your combination lock, and expect it to open. You have to go through the process. And that's what people want. They want us to be willing to let them go through a process so they can kind of think it all through and be able to try and grasp it and try to understand it. Because that's what they want. They don't want us chasing, oh boy, here comes a Christian, or here comes a non-Christian. Oh, wow, get out my gun. I'm going to get him. I saw him first. I'm putting my tag on him. I'm going to tag him for the Lord. Oh, hallelujah, tagging him for the Lord. That's the way that we approach him. And no wonder they're running scared and they're, oh, man, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you people. You're weird and you're crazy. Why? Well, that's why. Because our theology's all messed up. We want to tag them before God can bag them. And we have to let God do it. And God is going to do that through us. And then when we reach people, and then we build these relationships with people, then when they come to God, guess what? They're going to stay. Why do we have so many people that come in, they make decisions because they got involved in a program and they had an emotional in, 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 uh, feeling in their heart and they say, oh, I want to be a Christian, okay. But then they go out and all of a sudden it didn't take. Why? Because they were dedicating themselves to a program and not to God. They missed kind of that step in between. And we have to be able to let people be in that process and be willing to say, if they want to come in here and sit we got to quit attacking them. we got to just befriend them, and we got to build relationships with people at work. Build relationships in your neighborhood. Build relationships with people because that's how they get to know you. And then when they get to know you, they can see Jesus in you. And all of a sudden, they're going to say, wow, what is it that's different about you? Have you ever, has anybody ever said that to you? What's different about you? You've had all these problems and all these situations going on in your life, and let you're not down in the dumps. What is different? And you say, ha, ah, I'm glad you asked. What's different is Jesus. It's not a church. It's not a religion. It's Jesus. Would you like to meet my friend, Jesus? Would you like to meet my Savior? That's when we have the opportunity. Because once they see how things go in our lives, then they're going to start answering questions or asking questions. Now, it doesn't matter whether we know all the answers because you don't worry about that. Because two reasons. If you don't have the answer, say, hey, I'm going to get the answer, and I'm going to, I'll let you know what it is when I find out. That's a good question. Then it gives you another opportunity to go back to them. And I know Then we say the scripture, well, God's going to give us the words to say. Well, sometimes he gives you no words to say, so you can go back and say them. He wants you to practice those words before you say them. Man, if people just think for two minutes before they said something, man, what a world, different world we live in, wouldn't it? They're sitting there, things are coming out of their mouth, and they're trying to grab them and haul them back in, because once they're out... That's it. It's gone. So hopefully I've uh, given you the 10-second uh, video or the 10-minute video of history and how the, the difference is. Hopefully you've got that. If not, then, hey, ask me, and hopefully I'll try to go into a little more depth. So, okay, we know all this, okay? So now we're going to get out of the nitty-gritty. So how do we do it? Know your audience. Remember, if we know our audience, then we know how, who we're dealing with. 
But if we want to know how to share our faith, the best place that we can go is to Paul because he was very good at sharing his faith. And I want to follow along with him and five principles that Paul used when sharing his faith. And the first principle is caring. And that's found in Romans 9, 1 to 3. It says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that, I, that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Wow. Paul is caring about the people that he's, he comes in contact with. He was willing to sacrifice his own soul and his own salvation for his nation to be able to accept Jesus. I don't quite have that much love in my heart for anybody I know. I'm not willing to sacrifice my salvation for somebody else. God would have to put a miracle in my heart for that to happen. But to caring, and he cared about the people. And we need to start caring about people. If we don't care about someone, we're not going to witness to them. We're not going to build relationships with them. We're not going to do anything because we don't care. And if you don't care about people, then you need to check your heart. Because you can't get close to God without, fighting, without caring about the lost. Because he died for the lost. And so we need to start caring. You say, well, I, don't, I have a hard time caring about people. Well, the best way to overcome that is start praying for them. Pray for them every day. Somebody at, at your workplace, if you want to say, well, I really don't care about that person that much, start praying for them. Asking God to bless their life. Asking God to intervene. Ask, asking them, God, to be able to enable you opportunities to be able to build a relationship with them so you can reach out to them. And then they'll know that you honestly care. I meant sincere care, caring. We don't want to just be caring for an alternative motive. We don't want that because people can, can kind of see right through it. These postmodernist people, they have a, have a detector, a fraud detector, and they can kind of see it. And they're always looking for the negative anyway. So we have to make sure that our hearts are right. And if we don't care about people, we need to pray until we do care. So that's the first step. But the problem is most Christians don't care about the non-Christians. We're happy in our little old world with our little old group of people that we call and we have coffee with. And we don't want no outsiders. It messes up the everything, you know. We don't like that. But so we have to care about people first. That's the first principle that we have to have in order to share our faith is caring. And usually it's not uh, when we talk to unchurched people or our friends that aren't Christians and we talk to them about God, they might get a little hostile towards us because they want to see whether or not you really care about them or whether you're just pumping sunshine. And they're going to test us. Some of them may get real hostile towards us, but you've got to be willing to say, hey, it doesn't matter. Hey, I want, I, want to, I want to see you saved so bad, but if not, if you don't get saved, then I still want to be your friend, and I'm still going to pray for you, and I'm still going to do what I can do to help you because that's why we're here. We're supposed to build relationships with other people, and we're supposed to be service-oriented because Jesus was, was a real good servant. He, he said, I came not to be served but to serve, and he served people, and we need to have that example. The second principle of sharing our faith is by praying for people. I already kind of touched that a little bit. Uh, Romans 10.1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that he might be saved. Paul spent time praying for people, not just nameless faces. You know, we kind of just kind of use the, the splatter praying. We say, oh, bless the whole world, God. Bless the United States. Let everyone in the United States be saved. And that's great. We should play those kind of prayers. But God wants you to pray for your next-door neighbor. Pray for him. Pray for the person at work. Pray for everybody you come in contact with. When you're walking down the street, pray for the people that, come, that pass by you. Pray God touch their hearts. If they don't know you, let them come to know you. Start praying for people. Start being aware of the people that are around us. And start praying for our family. I'm amazed that some Christians don't even pay, pray for their family. I'm amazed at that. We have to pray for our family. We have to put faces to our prayers. We have to pray for needs of, needs of real people. That's what Paul did. He prayed for his, his kinsmen. He prayed for his nation. He prayed for people he come in contact with. And we have to do that. We have to pray. We have to care and we have to pray. And if, we, those things, if any of those are gone or we don't have those, then forget it. We don't have a right to share our faith with anybody if we haven't prayed for them. Because then we're trying to go in there blind. You're trying to go in to repair something without a tool bag. 
if I call a furnace repairman and they come to my house and they're going to look at my furnace that's broke and they don't have any tools, they'll have nothing, I don't have a lot of confidence in them. And believe me, they aren't going to be able to fix anything. And that's the same thing with us. We have to make sure we come with our tools. We have to come prayed up, studied up to be able to witness and testify of God because that's the way he works through us. The third principle of sharing our faith is acknowledge what is positive in people's lives. We're so afraid to acknowledge something in someone's life because they'll, they, we think that they'll misconstrue it as approving of their lifestyle. So what do we do? Oh, we got a guy at work, and we don't say, oh, man, I re-, you know, he did something that was honest and showed great integrity. We don't, we don't compliment that. We don't say anything about that because we're afraid that, oh, if I say he's did a good job or that praised him for his honesty, that he'll think I'm approving that he's living with someone that he isn't married to. And I'm approving that he has a child under wed- out of wedlock. We're afraid to do that because we're afraid that we're confirming their whole life. But that isn't the case. We can affirm things that are right in people's lives because a lot of people do things right, and we need to acknowledge them. And what happens when we acknowledge something in someone's life is all of a sudden they light up. Look at your kid when they're little. Man, you praise that kid for something that he did right, and man, I'll tell you, they want to do more of it. Because we're just, we just suck in praise like a sponge. And we're drawn to people that are going to lift us up. And they're going to acknowledge that we're there. And acknowledge some of the things that we've done. And that's what we need to do. We need to seek out things and start thinking about the people that we're talking about. Is there something in that person's life that they're doing that's right? Now, Paul did that again in uh, verse, where is it? Acts 17, 23. And he was on Mars Hill when he said this. Oh, excuse me, wrong one. Romans 10, 2. Wrong scripture. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now, Paul could have said, you guys are totally wrong in what you're doing. You're crazy. But he didn't. He found something in their life to compliment or acknowledge, and that was they had a zeal for God. But it wasn't according to knowledge. We, meet, we know a lot of people that have a zeal for God. They think they're serving God. They want to serve God, but they have that zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. But it's okay to say, okay, you have a zeal for God. It's okay to compliment something in their life that's right, something that you can agree on. Once you can start agreeing on something, then you can start building that relationship, and then you can start explaining different things, and they're going to be more apt to accept that. And that's what we need to do. Now, in Acts 17, 23, it says, For I passed by and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him I declare unto you. Now, Paul could have said, You bunch of idiots, you're building all these altars, you're building all these things made of rocks and stone. How stupid can you be? And there's times I'd like to say that. How stupid can you be? But he didn't. He said, he picked something out, and he says, I even seen there an altar to the unknown God. Well, that's the one I want to talk about today. What's the one I want to share with you? I want to share with you the unknown God, the one that you don't know, because you are a very religious, and I want to help you out. And that's what Paul did, and that's what we need to do. We need to start acknowledging things in people's lives so we build a relationship. And just don't throw everything away, because when we start getting something we can agree on, then... We can start building that relationship. And then they'll start being say, hey, you know, this is different. This is different. They're not trying to, to drag me into church by, a, by my neck or by the back of my hair. They really care about me. And once they do, then all of a sudden those, those boundaries and those, those uh, things that are keeping them from seeing Jesus are starting to break down. And that's what we want to do. We want to break through that wall that's separating them from a religion to a relationship. That's what we want to do. And I, I'll tell you, it's hard breaking down a wall. It's like trying to sit there with a pencil and trying to beat down a wall. Because that's basically what we're doing. We're trying to tear down that wall with a pencil, and we're right in the middle of the wall, just hammering away, hammering away, and hammering away at it. Well, sooner or later, if we hammer enough, and the pencil's strong enough, that wall is going to start to weaken. And then that wall will come down. And that's what we have to realize. It's not going to be an overnight thing. We have to build those relationships. We have to care about people. We have to pray with them. Because when we do, that's when things are going to start to change. Because they can see through all our motives. If our motives aren't pure, they'll know it. 
So we have to pray and make sure God changed my heart. And I pray that I pray that almost every day. I say, God, change my heart. Let your compassion rule and love rule in my heart, Lord. Let me care about people like you care about people. And when that happens, they'll be able to sense it. Because they were drawn to Jesus because he had such a compassion about him. They knew when Jesus looked at them that he loved them. And that's what we need to do. We want people, when we look at them, to be able to see Jesus and say, they really do love me. They really do care. And that's what we need to do. We need to let God love this world, this community. Let them love our friends. Let them love our relatives through us. Because that's what he wants us to do. The fourth principle of sharing our faith is speaking the message. Romans 10, 14 and 15 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and the glad tidings of good news. Now we think preaching is a scolding or a nagging or something. And so with that word preaching, oh, don't preach to me. Have you heard that? I didn't come here to be preached at. I'm not even at church. But preaching is not a negative word in the Greek. It's a positive word. It's just telling a message publicly. That's all preaching is. I'm telling a message publicly here today. That's what preaching is. And that's what it means. It's not nagging. If you feel nagged, though, then you better ask the Holy Spirit, what are you trying to tell me? Because the Holy Spirit will, will nudge you a little bit and try to, try to move you in, the, in a different direction. So we need to realize that we need to speak the message. Now, it said here that they, how can they hear unless they be sent? Now, the word sent is from the word apostilio. That's where we get the word apostles from, and that's where we, as Assembly of Gods, get the word missionary from. It's from this word, apostle. So if you're sent, you're technically an apostle. You're technically a missionary if you're sent, because that's all the requirement is, is that you're sent. But you have to be sent by Jesus. John 20, 21 says, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. So the person has to be sent. And if we're sent, then it's not our message. It's his message that we need to be telling. Not our message. It doesn't matter what we think. What did God say? What did Jesus say? It's his message that we want to be able to give to people. It's his message we want to be able to share. It's not ours. And we have to make sure that that is his message is not ours. Because sometimes when we talk to people, you know, we see things in their life, and all of a sudden we say, oh, and you're supposed to stop doing this. We kind of add a little bit of things there, too. If it's in the Bible, that's fine, but sometimes we use those opportunities to, to kind of put a little jabs and things in there. But we have to speak his message. It's not our message. And because it's not our message, we don't have the right to water it down. We don't have the right to do that. We can't change his message because it's his message. It's not mine. And we water down the message. We have to preach all of it. We have to preach about heaven, but we certainly have to preach about hell, too. We have to preach about giving. We have to preach about all these things because Jesus dealt with everything. And I can't take any part of this Bible out of here. I'm obligated by God to preach the whole counsel of what's in there. Everything that's written in there, I'm obligated to teach or to preach from. Everything. I can't just pick and choose. It, oh, it's nice when I preach those hallelujah messages. That's great. Oh, man, you guys get excited. And, man, that's all you can do not to jump up and down. But, oh, when I start stepping on some toes, ooh, we don't like those. Don't like the stope, step, toe stomping. But I have to do it all because I'm obligated to do that. Because one day I'm going to give account of everything that I have said here behind this podium. Everything. And I have to make sure that what I have said lines up with what God's word says. Because I am sent but so are you. You're sent too. And we need to understand that. And it's not our message. It's his message. So we have to tell the message accurately. That's the key. We have to teach it accurately. We don't have the liberty to change it. But then we must tell it positively. Because the gospel is a positive message. It's not negative. It isn't about all the things you have to give up. It's not all about that. It's all the things that we gain. When I became a Christian, I didn't give up anything but my sin. There's some things I didn't want to do anymore. But when I married Randy, I didn't want to see any other men either. Because I was in love with him. So I didn't want to do some other things over here. Because I was focused on him. 
And when we become Christians and we're focused on God, there's going to be some things over here that are going to fall off that we aren't going to want to do anymore. And if I don't want to do them, have I given anything up? No. You try to feed me uh, some, some fishes and stuff like that, hey, forget it. I'm not eating that. I don't like that stuff. But when we give the message of God, it's true, and it's positive. The message of God is positive, and we have to understand that. So we don't have to prop it up to be able to get people to bite into it because we become salesmen. We're trying to sell Jesus to people. Well, guess what? They're not buying. They're not buying it. They've been commercialized, and they've done all kinds of things and, and for everything under the sun. So when we start talking about Jesus, we sound just like another commercial. We're just advertising Jesus. So we have to make sure that we add those caring and those relationships there so they understand we're not trying to sell them something. We're not trying to sell Amway. Years ago, in the 80s, that's when Amway became popular. And Amway became very popular and financially sound because they started using the principles of modernism to reach people to sell Amway. So it worked in Amway, so it worked in the church. So, hey. They stole our principles sometimes back there. So we have to treat it positively. But the problem is we don't think that the message of God has any power. But the reality is it has power. We just have to get the message. We have to tell it accurately and positively and let God's word do the work. Because it is power and it is life. Every time I read, that, read the Bible, I can feel that power. I can feel that life that's flowing in it. That's why it's different. So we don't have to prop it up. We don't have to do all these fancy little things to it because the message will stand on its own. And it's the message that changes people's life. Not our programs. Not whatever we throw money at. It's the message that, sell, that sells itself. That's the fifth principle is trusting the power of the message. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Faith is generated by the message, and the message is the good news of Jesus. So we don't have to prop it up. We don't have to do anything to it. And it said the feet, where, where was that at? Was that the, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. Now, in the old days, they didn't have the telephone. They didn't have all these things. The Pony Express hadn't, wasn't written yet. So the way that they communicated messages to people that live somewhere else was through messengers. And they would run to different places to deliver them messages. And they could tell from the messenger whether the news they were bringing or good, was good or bad because they had a spring in their step and they were kind of happy. They knew they were spreading Good news. And so they were anxious to talk to them. And that's why they call them the beautiful feet, because their feet are beautiful. In other words, in our language, it'd be like, man, they're a sight for sore eyes. Are we a sight to sore eyes to our, our non-Christian friends? Are we a sight to sore eyes to people that come in contact with us? We have the same message. We have the good news message. We should be able to, to be able to have beautiful feet. Because we're bringing them a good message, a great message, the best message in the world. Faith is generated by the message. And we need to believe this, and we need to understand that that's how we... doesn't have to do anything else to it. It's power. Outreach is no longer about conquest. It's not program-based, event-oriented, or proving the truth of the Christian faith. Effective ministry focused on service relationship-based, and demonstrating the relevance of the Christian faith. That's how we reach people. If they're modernists, then, oh, yeah, revert back to the modern way conquest theology and programs. And we need to have a little bit of both because we have these transitional period of times. But we can't just speak our words. We have to speak God's word because that's where the power is. <clears throat> there was an article in the Christian Reader in July and August of 2000 about a, a woman, her name was Amy Tracy, and I'm just going to read this because it'll probably be faster than me trying to shorten it. Amy Tracy was raised in a dysfunctional home that focused on performance. Amy bloomed in high school as a cross-country runner, and her dad was a typical sports-obsessed father who constantly prodded her to perform. When, he stopped, when she stopped winning races, her family grew disappointed with her, and she began to grow depressed. 
In college, Amy got into drugs and alcohol her junior year, and she developed a kinsman with several professors who knew she was gay. She was drawn to her, to her sense of community, and ultimately, Amy concluded that she was gay. Soon afterwards, Amy committed her life to women's rights, and she became actively involved in a pro-abortion movement. Yet there were times Amy was filled with profound sense of emptiness and sadness, a longing for peace, and this is where the people come because of the longing in their heart. For longing for peace and joy that she didn't find in the way she was living her life. As she looked at the Christians who marched against her in the abortion demonstrations, all she saw was anger and hatred. In Amy's words, Christians lived down to her low expectations. Yet Amy started feeling like she was falling apart. She concluded that her emptiness was hunger for God himself. But now Amy had become the press secretary for the National Organization for Women. One night in Washington, D.C., Amy ran into a pro-life act activist she had seen at several abortion demonstrations. She made a sarcastic remark, expecting him to respond the same way. But instead, he said, Amy, all I, have, all I pray for is the chance for, to you see you standing in church, praising and loving Jesus. Forget the abortion debate. That's all I really want. Her hunger for God grew desperate, and finally she looked in the yellow pages for a Christian church. One Sunday, she showed up, her pickup truck covered with rainbow flags and pro-abortion pro stickers. Amy wondered if she'd be thrown out, yet as the pastor spoke and the church worshiped, she sensed God calling her. It took a while, but eventually Amy committed her life to Jesus Christ. Today, Amy is a writer for Focus on the Family in the area of public policy. Amy says, my prayer is that Christians will be able to see others with compassion, not as enemies, as broken and in need of restoration by the only healing of our souls that Jesus Christ can give. That's how we reach people. We don't judge them for the things that they're doing. We know that abortion isn't right. We know all these things. We don't have to beat them over the head with it. We just got to get it past that and start loving them. Say, all we want is for you to know Jesus. Because when they know Jesus, God, he takes care of all this other stuff. A couple of weeks ago, I had a lady call me from, from Salt Lake. Uh, was uh, somebody that I knew, her kid. And she called me and and she says, uh, I want to ask you a question. And I says, okay. She says, I was thinking about going to church. She says, but I'm afraid they won't accept me there. And I says, well, why wouldn't they accept you? She says, well, because I'm a bisexual. Now, what we've done normally, we say, oh, no, 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 you're going to hell. Oh, man, you got to quit that stuff right now. You just got to quit. You're going to hell. I didn't do that. I just listened to her. And she says, I'm afraid because of my lifestyle, I won't be welcome in church. See, she had already got the realization that she needed something. Her life wasn't satisfying. She had tried. She's been out in the world. She knows those things. And she says, will they welcome me in church? See? And I, then I got to explain to her. I says, hey, look, your lifestyle isn't what it needs to be by what God talks about in his Bible. God isn't approved of that kind of a lifestyle. But God also doesn't approve of the lifestyle of adulterers. The men sleeping around on their wives. He doesn't approve of their lifestyle either. And he doesn't approve of people that kill people. He doesn't approve of that style either. And started naming some of the things to, to, to try to break down those walls to help her realize that, hey, your lifestyle is something that only God can change. I says, your problem is that you're trying to see the world through, uh, through glasses that are tinted in a certain direction. I says, but when you come to God, when you come to know God, then he's going to give you a clear pair of glasses, and you're going to be able to see things as they really are. And then God will take care of all that stuff. I said, so go to church. He says, I says, don't tell them what your lifestyle is. <laughs> don't cause any problems. Hey, let us don't cause anything that isn't necessary. But go to church. Let the people love you. Let them get to know you. Build relationships with people. And then let God take care of that stuff. See, we try to clean the fish before God catches them. You know, it's, it's kind of hard. God didn't tell us to, to, he only told us to catch him. He didn't tell us to gut and clean him. But every time we see somebody, we want to gut and clean him. We want to beat him over the head with the Bible and say, you're going to hell. Hey, straighten up your life. That's why people don't like Christians. They're scared of us. They're afraid of us because they're afraid that once we get in power or we control things, then everything is going to be forced upon them. And they don't understand they don't understand Christianity. So it's up to us to reach out to these people. It's up to us to build a relationship with these people and show, hey, I don't want to talk about your lifestyle. 
I just want to get to know you, not the things that you do. We've got to be able to separate people from their things that they do and quit trying to condemn them for things because before I became a Christian, I was lost. And no matter what people's lifestyle is today, they're just lost. And they've got to find their way. And we are the ones that have the road map. We're the ones that has the flashlight to be able to lead them to God. We're the ones that has that information. Instead of condemning people and calling, hey, you're lost. Well, they already know they're lost. In the deepest, darkest nights of their despair, they know they need God. And that's when they're going to start seeking. That's when they're going to start coming to a church. That's when they're going to start wanting to feel like they're loved and someone cares about us. And that's where we come in. We as a family have to love people. We have to care about them. We have to pray about them. We have to allow God to do the work in their hearts. And if it takes four months, it takes four months. Because everyone is different. We're not all going to hear one message and then get saved and, and be on fire for God for 70 years till they throw us in the ground. Sometimes it's a process. Let people live through that process. Don't try to, try to force people into decisions. There are times when we have to ask the question, though. We need to not be afraid to ask the question. When we've built a relationship and we feel this tugging of the Holy Spirit to say, ask him, would you like to know Jesus? Could I introduce you to Jesus? Would you like your life to be changed? And then seal the deal. We got a whole bunch of salesmen, but they never seal the deal. We're good starters. We're good at doing certain things, but man, we don't know how to end it. We don't know how to finish the deal. And we need to do that. We need not to be afraid to ask them to make a decision for Christ. And as believers, if we do that, if we utilize these five principles and be able to understand the environment we live in, then we're going to make a difference in this community. But if we spend all our time throwing money at programs, if we spend all of our time trying to beat people over the head with everything that they're doing in their life that's wrong and not focus on something that they're doing that's right, we're not going to win anyone. We're going to alienate the world, and we're going to end up in a situation where the only ones we have to be tolerant with is us. We're the only ones that have to be tolerant. No one else does. But when we do it God's way, then multitudes can come to Christ, and we'll do it one by one, one by one. Someone you know was going to come to the Lord. Someone you know, someone you know, someone you know, because we have to be willing to do that. And that's the way that we're going to make a difference in this area. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for this day.